Brother Richard Harper uh, started Determined Ministries in 1996 and has just been preaching all over the country and the world. Uh, and uh, has covered, uh, I believe, 40, at least 45 states, I believe, uh, Brother Harper has preached in. And I always remember when Brother Harper came to Ambassador, where Joanna and I studied and went to Bible college. When he came to chapel, we knew uh, that we were going to have some revival preaching. Uh, preaching that would stir our hearts and, and to challenge us uh, to, to get out of our comfort zone, perhaps our apathy. And uh, to encourage us to move forward for Christ. And I believe that today that's going to happen again. So, Brother Harper, thank you for taking time to be here. We welcome you, my brother. And we thank God for you. Thank you, sir. Amen. What a wonderful service so far. Now, brother, I'm going to ask you a pointed personal question. How old are you? Twenty-five, because you look nine. All right, I'm, 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 I'm sitting there thinking, oh wow, they've got they've got a young teenager that's going to direct the choir, but then obviously he's not. He's, he, I'm, I'm nearing sixty now, so you look really young. What a difficult song to lead, and a great job by the choir with the Hebrew overtones in the in the introduction and all that kind of stuff, and the speed and the different uh, the different uh, uh, different almost melodies to the song. What a wonderful job the choir did. Beautiful. Singing. You know that song, uh, One Day When Heaven Was Filled With His Praises, was written by a preacher. Uh, J. Wilbur Chapman was a preacher who had a young evangelist as his apprentice. He was doing tent revivals years ago. And all of a sudden, he got a, he got a, a contact from a church and he left and became a pastor and left the tent and all that kind of stuff to his apprentice evangelist. Uh, the apprentice evangelist went to the next meeting and uh, uh, preached the first few days and revival started really breaking out. People were getting saved. Things were happening, not just under the tent, but all through the town. And at the end of the week, they came to him and said, would you please stay? Would you stay one more week and preach another week? He said, I can't. They said, oh, please, we really want you to stay one more week. If you've got commitments at another church, we'll contact them for you. We'll tell them what's going on here. I'm sure they'll understand. He said, no, I can't. I've got to go. They said, well, after several minutes of this, they finally said, do you mind telling us why you can't stay another week? We've answered every objection. We've solved every problem. He said, listen, I've only got six messages. <laughs> and they told a young Billy Sunday to go ahead and preach the same six messages the next week. So J. Wilbur Chapman was an evangelist who wrote that song as a pastor later on and trained Billy Sunday. So you notice how biblical that song is. I love songs like that. Go ahead and turn in your Bible. Not a Christmas message this morning, but we're going to be in perhaps the most famous Old Testament passage in the Word of God. Turn to the 23rd Psalm this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 23 this morning. While you're training, I'm just a little bit loud up here. I don't know if this is on. If we could give me just a little less volume, maybe less monitor, I'd be great. By the way, I always say this. The PA guys are so wonderful as we travel. And you know the PA guy is the only guy in a New Testament church that if he does his job perfectly, nobody even knows he's there. His job is to be in complete anonymity. And I've messed that up. I'm sorry. Thank you. That's much better. Psalm 23. As you get to this passage of Scripture, there's so many passages of the Word of God that we know, that we're very familiar with, that will encourage us. But we don't know the circumstances uh, that were going on when the passage was written. Now, we understand that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Ghost. We understand that holy men of God moved, uh, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But in this passage of Scripture, David is 
later in his life. And it's obvious that David is going through a trial as he writes this 23rd Psalm. Most likely, the trial is the rebellion of his son Absalom. Remember, Absalom and David have been at each other's throats, if you will. Absalom uh, has killed the oldest, the first in line for the throne of David, Amnon, when Amnon raped uh, Absalom's sister, Tamar. And so Absalom and his dad have been completely uh, completely separated from each other until finally there is a little bit of a peace that is going on and things seem to be a little bit better, at least as far as David can see. But Absalom has been turning the nation against David. He would sit on the steps as people would come in and be judged by David. And as they would walk out, Absalom would take the side of the plaintiff and then he would take the side of the defendant. In other words, he was very good at talking out of both sides of his mouth. He would have been a great politician in the United States of America today. Absalom has now turned the hearts of the nation of Israel toward him, and he's now led a rebellion against David. David, not wanting a battle to take place in the city of Jerusalem, has fled with a remnant of his army. Now, please understand, he's left his home, he's left his palace, he's left his throne, he's left all the trappings of royalty. He's not sleeping in a comfortable bed, he's sleeping on the ground, he's not sleeping the peace of someone who is constantly protected, he's sleeping the uh, the uneasy sleep with a pillow, as a, a rock as a pillow, wondering if his son is going to kill him before the day is out. It's at this time when David is going through a trial. Now, we all understand going through trials. We can sympathize with David that he's going through a trial. And every one of us has been through a trial for almost two years now, going through all that's been going on in our world today. But David's trial is a little bit different. David's trial doesn't have a good outcome. There's no ray of light. There's no silver lining around these dark clouds. If David is to ever go back to Jerusalem and sit upon his throne and rule as the king, as God has anointed him to do, it's going to be at the expense of his son's life. So, oh, Brother Harper, no, no, David can spare Absalom. I, I defy you to prove that from Scripture. David actually gives orders that Absalom's not to be touched. But remember how he ends up hanging from his hair in a tree with darts in his heart. Absalom's going to die if David is going to be victorious. On the other side, if Absalom is to win. And by the way, you want to know how Absalom, how David felt about Absalom? Read what it says after he's told that Absalom is dead. When he begins to cry with that lamentable cry, he said, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would God I had died for thee. It was so bad that Joab, his commanding general, pulled David aside and saying, You're not being fair. You're weeping more for the enemy than your own men that died in the battle. If David, if Absalom is to live, David is going to die. Absalom has already exhibited a great disdain for his father, trying to humiliate his own father in the city of Jerusalem. Absalom is not going to let David live if his army is defeated. And so there's two choices here, the death of Absalom or the death of David. There's no good outcome. Now, some of us have gone through trials and some of us have even gone through trials when there was no good outcome. But this is even worse. As David is facing this trial, he has to realize that it's all his own fault. You say, Brother Harper, what do you mean? Remember when David had committed that sin with Bathsheba and that sin against Uriah the Hittite and Nathan the prophet came in and told him that story of this uh, of this poor man that had one little ewe lamb that ate at his table and slept at his bed and a rich man that had lots of flocks. And when the rich man had company, he killed the poor man's ewe lamb and served it to his friends. And David became incensed. Remember what he said? That man shall repay fourfold. David's going to murder one man by the name of Uriah, but David will stand over four of his own children's graves. 
David knows that this is part of the continuing judgment of God. David has been forgiven. He has confessed his sin. His sin has been forgiven. But just because our sin has been forgiven does not remove the consequences of that sin. Every person in this room that's trusted Christ as your personal Savior, your sins have been forgiven. But death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The consequences are still there. At the end of it, you have eternal life, but the consequences are still there. Imagine David as he's walking into the tent. He's thinking this in a trial like he's never faced before. There's no good outcome and it's all his own fault. It's all part of the continuing judgment of God. And he walks into a cave or a tent all by himself and he begins to sit down and think about the good old days. Isn't that what we do when we go through trials? We think about the good old days. David probably sat there and remembered back before Absalom rebelled, actually before he was anointed king over Israel, and before even he was anointed king over the tribe of Judah, before he worked as the commander of Saul's mighty men, and even before he went to King Saul's palace to live and be threatened and play the harp, and even before he went down in that valley to stand up against Goliath in that valley of Elah, before all of that, back when David was just a shepherd boy. Sometimes remembering the good old days helps us get through the worst of trials, doesn't it? And David begins to remember what it was like for him to be a shepherd. And then, as he often did, David's thoughts changed from David to God. David often looked at things through the prism of God's viewpoint. And I'm going to tell you this, no matter what trial or trouble or tribulation you're facing today, it always looks different through the eyes of the shepherd. And David begins to think about God as his shepherd And he's going to write this beautiful psalm in this time of trial. But I do want to point out something to you. At the beginning of the 23rd Psalm, David is living in a cave with his son out to kill him in a trial that there's for which there's no good outcome. And at the end of the psalm, David is living in a cave, fleeing from his own son who's out to kill him in a trial that's his own fault. Nothing changes except David's viewpoint. As you sit here this morning, this passage of Scripture for the child of God carries some of the greatest and most sweet promises that we hold as dear as anything else in the entire world. But for the lost person, can I say this? As wonderful as this psalm is, and as often as even Hollywood will quote the 23rd Psalm, have you noticed that? It's the one passage of Scripture they pretend still exists in their mind. We know it still exists. They pretend like they think it does. But as wonderful as the 23rd Psalm is, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior... None of it applies to you. Not one promise in this entire psalm applies to a lost person, applies to someone without Christ. But here is the amazing truth of it. The instant this morning that you accept him as your shepherd, you get him as your savior, too. Not only do you get an eternal life in heaven, but every promise in this passage of Scripture becomes yours to hold and to cherish. We're going to read this passage, and I do want to warn you, there are a lot of points to this message. There are eight points to this message. Each of them is about 15 to 18 minutes long. So buckle up. We're going to be here for a while. See, that's an uneasy laugh. You don't know me well enough to know that that's not true. I just just told a joke there, all right? But there are eight points to the message, and I do want to warn you, I'm not going to preach on every single word in the psalm, although you might think so as we begin. Let's read the text this evening, this morning. So many of you know it so well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. 
Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's have a word of prayer before we look at this beautiful passage of Scripture. The Lord and Holy Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful Sunday school lesson in our classroom, and I'm sure in the other classrooms as well. And Father, thank you for the beautiful music, the choir special, the wonderful duet that we heard. Father, thank you that all of the songs pointed to you and your Son. Lord, we thank you now for all of that, and we ask that you bless this message as we turn our focus to your word. Father, have your will and your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice you can't read the psalm without starting with the first word, can you? The Lord is my shepherd. T-H-E. Notice it does not say, a Lord is my shepherd. It does not say, some Lord is my shepherd. It does not say, a bunch of lords are my shepherd. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I want you to notice the first thing that you can't miss when you get to this psalm is, I have a particular shepherd this morning. I have a particular shepherd. Let me just say this for the record, and I don't mean to offend anyone, whether you're here in the auditorium or listening online somewhere. Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. God says this, I am the Lord. Beside me there is none other. I want you to notice David is not questioning. He's not asking. He's making a definitive statement that there is, in fact, one Lord. There is, in fact, one shepherd. There is, in fact, one God. Notice number one, I have a particular shepherd this morning. Notice the second word. As you look down at your Bible, you'll notice the second word in this psalm is typeset different than any other word in the psalm. You'll notice that it is written with a capital L, a capital O, a capital R, and a capital D. That was the translator's way of reminding us that when you see those four capital letters, you're seeing the translation of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. What you're reading is so much more than just uh, just uh, the fact that He is the Lord. It's so much more than that because of the definition of that single word. One thing that it does, of course, indicate is that He is holy. So I want you to notice... Number one, I have a particular shepherd. But number two, I have a perfect shepherd. It should make it easier to trust him, shouldn't it? If we understand that he's perfect, that he's never made a mistake, never made an error, never made a miscalculation, then no matter what we face in our life, no matter what we're going through, we know that our perfect shepherd is the one that is control of putting us there and doing that. And it makes it easier for us to trust him. What a joy it is to know that we have a perfect shepherd this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot unto God? First Timothy Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold received by tradition from the vain conversations of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a line without spot and without blemish. He said, Brother Harper, of course you would say that. Of course my pastor would say that. Of course a preacher or a Christian would say that. But you know, it's not just preachers and Christians that say that. In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? 
seeing that we're in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. How about Pontius Pilate walking out in John chapter 19 and verse 4 when he says, Behold, I bring, you, bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. I'm here to tell you, it's not just preachers that admit that he's perfect. It's a pagan politician and a lost thief on the cross that acknowledge that the one hanging on that cross is the perfect Son of God. Amen. See, I don't just have a particular shepherd, but number two, I have a perfect shepherd. Amen. Number three, notice the third word, if you will. The Lord... Is my shepherd. What a wonderful thing. You know, it, we, we do this, do we not? When we go through a trial, we talked about looking back at the good old days. But we'll say something like this, boy, if we were David. Boy, I remember that day that I came back in from battle and they lined the streets and they began to sing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I remember that day when God delivered the giant Goliath into my hand. I remember that day when Samuel came to my house and anointed me the king of the next king of the nation of Israel. Boy, oh boy, he sure was a good shepherd back then. Well, we're guilty of this, are we not? If we were David, we would say, you know, if Absalom came to me tomorrow, waved a white flag of truce, we hugged each other's necks. We marched back into Jerusalem with my army and his army side by side. We walked into the palace. I sat down on the kingly throne and he sat down beside of me as the crown prince of the nation of Israel. Boy, if God did that, he sure would be a good shepherd. That's not what David says. There's no if and there's no past tense. The Lord is my shepherd. I have a present shepherd this morning. Please understand this. David laying on the ground with a pillow for a rock for a pillow with his son out to kill him, with his life falling apart, fleeing from his own kingdom, from his own palace and his own throne. He sits there in the middle of that wilderness and said, the Lord is right now. He is my shepherd. Amen. The old song says, just when I need him most. Just when I need Him most, Jesus is near to comfort and cheer. Just when I need Him most. He's always providing that very present help in trouble. He's always providing mercy and the grace to help in time of need. Understand, I have a present shepherd. Whatever you or I are facing right now as a Christian, the shepherd's with us every single step of the way. Amen. The Lord is, but then there's the best word, I think, in the entire psalm. At least to me. The Lord is my Shepherd, please understand this. If you're here today and you know Christ as your personal Savior, I am absolutely thrilled and overjoyed that you know Christ as your personal Savior. Perhaps the greatest joys of my life are to know that my wife and my daughter know Christ as their personal Savior. I'm thrilled with the fact that Jesus loves the little children of the world. All the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You ever hear the other verses to that song? English, Scotch, Irish and Jew, Russian and Italian too. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Did you ever hear this version? Orange, purple, pink and green. Strangest kids you've ever seen. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I am thrilled that he loves the world. But there is no greater personal truth that has ever been uttered by anyone anywhere than that simple little children's song that says, Jesus loves me. I'm here to tell you what a wonderful thing to think about. Oh, yes, I'm thrilled that he loves you. I'm overjoyed that he loves you. But nothing compares to the thought of knowing that he loves me. See, that's what doesn't make sense. 
Doesn't it make sense for me, standing down here as a wretched, sin-sick human being that has trusted Christ as his Savior, and looking up toward the throne room of Almighty God and saying, Hey, he's mine. Joy floods my soul, for Jesus hath saved me, freed me from sin which long had enslaved me, lifted me up from sorrow and shame, and now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. It makes sense for me to look up toward heaven and say, He is mine, doesn't it? Do you know what doesn't make sense? Do you know what ought to boggle our minds just a little bit? Is that from the perfection of heaven's throne, He sits there and looks down at me and you and says, And you're mine too. It makes sense for me to claim Him, doesn't it? It doesn't make sense. For him to claim me. What did he say? My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man be able to pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 29 through 31. The truth of the matter is, he claims us too. If there's a thought that should make you pillow your head tonight saying, Amen, before you fall asleep, it's that He claims me. Makes sense for me to claim Him. It doesn't make sense the other way around. Number one, I have a particular shepherd. Number two, I have a perfect shepherd. Number three, I have a present shepherd. Number four, I have, uh, I have a personal shepherd. Number five, I have a providing shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then there's a series of things that He provides for us. First thing He provides for us is rest. He maketh me to lie down. Have you ever noticed that the old saying is this, and I think it's off by a couple of uh, percentage points, 95% of the work done in a local church is done by 5% of the people. I think it's more like 98 and 2, if you really want to know the truth about the matter. But if you ever notice, you're sitting here and you come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And then the pastor says, we're doing this and this and this. And you decide, I'm just going to get involved with one more thing. And you work 40 hours a week and you come to church every time the doors are open. And you're a husband and a father or a wife and a mother. And you do this one extra thing that takes some extra time out of your schedule. And you are just exhausted. And then you look around and you see someone else in the same church that works the same amount of hours, that has the same amount of kids and the same family. And not only do they have that one responsibility that you added, but they have 27 other responsibilities. And you say, I don't know how they do it. That's because it doesn't say, come unto me, all you that sit on the sidelines, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, all you that labor. And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. I heard Tracy Jones say this one time. You remember Brother Tracy? Tracy Jones is one of those. He's from the, 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 the mountains of Tennessee. And he's, he talks like a guy from the mountains of Tennessee. But you ever notice how some of those Tennessee guys or some of those mountain guys, they say things and they, you, you, you sit there and listen to them. And six months later, you're still realizing just how deep it was. I remember, remember saying this in his pure, uh, his pure vernacular. He said, you ever stop and think that if you're in the yoke with Jesus, you ain't the one doing the pulling? <laughs> Now, that'll bless your heart. You think about it. Listen carefully. It gives me rest. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The truth of the matter is, I don't know how it works. But the more you do for the Lord, the more he gives you rest to do more for the Lord. You say, Brother Harper, that doesn't make sense. Neither does walking on water, but he did that too. Notice he gives us rest. He gives us refreshment. (laughs) Making me lie down where? In green pastures. 
in, besides still waters. Think about this. A good shepherd would take his sheep to a babbling brook, but the perfect shepherd takes them to still waters. I'm not an artistic person. Matter of fact, I may be the least artistic person that you'll ever meet in your entire life. I can't draw stick people without a ruler. It's that bad. It is terrible. We play, when we play trivia games, my wife always wants to play Pictionary. She knows I might know the question. I might not know the answer to a trivia question, but I can't draw anything. And I'm sitting there, all these people are on my team, and I, I, I draw like a second grader, right? My tongue hanging out like this when I'm drawing. And, I, and people are guessing. It's a dog. It's a cat. No, no. It's clouds. No. Finally, the timer goes off. I'm like, it's the Eiffel Tower. Can't you tell? But being uh, uh, the the complete opposite of artistic, I can tell you this. I probably picture this passage as well as the most artistic person. Can't you see it? The shepherd standing there with a few sheep resting around his feet while a few are eating from this green pasture that is so plush and green. It's thicker than any carpet you've ever seen. And the water so still, the reflection of the mountains is uh, right there in the water. We can all picture that because he provides the bread that we need and the water that we need, doesn't he? He provides rest and refreshment and restoration. He restoreth my soul. (laughs) You ever gone to work on Monday and you get to work on Monday and six of the 12 people in your office are out sick. And yet your boss still has the same list of things to do that he would have had if all 12 of you were there. You work all day. You don't even have time to eat lunch. You get home and find out that the sickness has pervaded your own family. And now your wife and both of your children are sick. You have a rough night sleeping. You end up sleeping on the couch because you don't want to get sick like everybody else in the home. And so you get up Tuesday morning. You go to work. And of the 12 people in your office, only three of them are there. And the same list is there. On the way home Tuesday night, you, uh, you, you go stop by to get something to eat because there's nothing to eat in the house because your wife's been sick the whole time. And you reach for your wallet and you realize you left it at work. You can't even eat. Wednesday morning, you go to work. Now nobody's there, just you. But there's still that list of 12 things written by the same boss that's not there now. Wednesday night on the way home, you have, a, uh, you have a flat tire and you're stuck on the side of the road changing that. You finally walk in. You look at the clock. It's 6.15. And you say, I really don't want to go to church. But you say, I'm not going to forsake the assembling. And you get up and you clean up and you come to church anyway, leaving the sick family all alone. Come to church and the song leader opens up to the first verse of the first song and you start to sing, I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. You, know, you can't sing that song with a frown on your face. By the time you get done with the song service and hear your pastor preach, your heart has been restored, hasn't it? You're ready to face Thursday, aren't you? Want a Bible example? The book of Lamentations, written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. If we were to retitle in modern day vernacular the title of the the book Lamentations, we would call it the book of whining. Jeremiah whines the whole time. He's crying the whole time. And sometimes it almost gets to the place where it's sacrilegious what he's saying. In chapter 3 especially, he accuses God of some things that no matter how dark our valley would be, we'd never accuse God of doing it. He said, listen, you put a target on my heart and then you step back and you shot arrows into the target just to put arrows in my heart. He says this in verse, I believe it's verse 20. Thou hast broken out all my teeth with gravel stones. The Hebrew picture there is that Almighty God held Jeremiah down, filled his mouth with with gravel, and made him chew till nothing is left in his mouth but bloody gums. He said, I've broken out all my teeth with gravel stones. Then that quick, his soul gets restored. He says this, it is of the Lord's mercies. Of these things called unto my mind, therefore have I hope. 
It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. For His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How do you go from complaining that God knocked all your teeth out to talking about His love and His mercy and His faithfulness because your soul got restored right before our very eyes? He restoreth my soul. He provideth rest and refreshment and restoration and righteousness. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. You know, Christian... If I were a lost person talking to most Christians, I wouldn't want to be a Christian. Isn't this what happens? You go to work and someone says, well, on Friday we're having a big old party. They're going to have, there's going to be alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we sure would like you to come. And you look down with this crestfallen look on your face and you draw figure eights with your toe as you go. I can't come Friday night. I'm a Christian. That sounds so miserable. Doesn't it? I mean, would you want that? In their mind, they're having all the fun and you're having nothing because you're just a Christian that can't do anything fun. That's not true at all, is it? You know, as long as we're following our shepherd, as long as we're on this path of righteousness, we are first surrounded by green pastures and still waters. As long as we're on this path of righteousness, wolves can't get to us because of His rod. As long as we're on this path of righteousness, we don't have to worry about thistles and thorns. We don't have to fall off the side of a cliff. We don't have to worry about a predator or an enemy. Because as long as I'm on the path behind Him, I'm supplied with all the things that I need. I'm protected in every area of my life. Why would I want to go anyplace else? It's not that I can't go, I'm a Christian. It's I don't want to go. I might end up getting off the path of righteousness righteousness if I go where you're telling me to go. And there is no better place in the world than the path of righteousness. Notice, number one, I have a particular shepherd. I have a perfect shepherd, a present shepherd, a personal shepherd, a providing shepherd who provides rest and refreshment and restoration and righteousness. Then you get to that fourth verse. And I think somewhere in the curriculum of every single Bible college, when they get to homiletics, they actually teach you to read this passage of Scripture like this. You've heard it many times. Yea, though I walk through the valley. Notice how scared my voice is. Of the shadow. I'm here to tell you, that sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? I mean, if you just read that and preach on that, that sounds like a scary passage of Scripture, doesn't it? Now, there are two interpretations for this valley of the shadow of death. There was a place called the valley of the shadow of death. It was a very narrow trail that led about seven miles and robbers and pillagers and plunderers would be there, and it was very dangerous and treacherous to, to walk on it, and you didn't know when you were going to face an enemy. I, that, it certainly is a, a fact that that road existed. My only problem with that interpretation is, I've never seen anything that says it was called that 3,000 years ago when David would have written this. I personally believe that David has come face to face with his own mortality. I think what David is saying is, if I wake up tomorrow morning and open my eyes and Absalom is standing over me with his sword drawn, he'll not be near as kind to me as I was to King Saul when the same thing happened. I think David is saying, even if I were to die. I want to point out a couple of things. It's the valley of the shadow of death. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, a lion can bite you and devour you. A snake can strike you and poison you. But the shadow of a lion... Can't bite. And the shadow of a snake can't strike. <laughs> and by the way, you can't have a shadow without a bright light on the other side, can you? That's right. 
But David isn't saying it like that. He isn't saying it like we read it. Yay. Oh, pray for me, brother. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, even if I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even if I'm going through the worst thing that you can possibly imagine, even if this is my last night on earth, listen, I will fear no evil. David is not saying my life is so terrible. Y'all need to pray for me. David is saying, I don't care what comes. I'm still not going to be afraid. The two reasons that he's, he talks about his protecting shepherd here. Two things that he says protects him. Number one is his presence. For thou art with me. There is no place in the world better than right beside of Jesus. As long as he is with us, we're safe. No matter what goes on in our lives, no matter what happens, as long as He is with us, we are safe. I will not fear the valley of the shadow of death, because Thou art with me. What a wonderful promise. find it all through the Word of God, but my favorite instance of it is when it's to us. In Hebrews chapter 13, I will never leave Thee, nor forsake Thee. Not, not just His presence, but also His power. Notice what He says. He says two things here. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Now, we know what the staff is. Everybody who's ever seen a picture, an art, 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 a painting of a shepherd, he's always got a staff in his hand. It's that long stick with the crook on the top of it. And we understand that the shepherd would use that to pull the sheep back onto the path if he needed to. Little lambs trying to walk off the path of, the, the path of righteousness. And there's thorns and thistles. And the shepherd protects him by taking the staff and pulling him back and pulling him back. By the way, have you ever seen a Hollywood special? Let me just ask you this. Have you ever seen a Hollywood special that uh, they show all the paparazzi stand out there, the red carpet's rolled out, this big old Hummer limousine pulls up, and all of a sudden the back door opens and this guy walks out with flowing robes and carrying a shepherd's staff in his hand. He's there for the annual awards for the, for the greatest shepherd in the world called the Sheppies. Have you ever seen that? See, in the world you have famous kings. In the Bible, you have famous kings. In the world, you have famous statesmen. In the Bible, you have famous statesmen. In the world, you have famous lawyers. The Bible has famous lawyers. In the world, you have famous generals. The Bible has famous generals. But there's something in the Bible that you won't find anyplace else in the world. And that's famous shepherds. This lowly, lowly job. Think about it for just a moment. Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses... On and on and on down the list we go. David, the pastor, is called a shepherd. The Lord calls himself a shepherd. God takes this lowliest of occupations and elevates it like no one else can. But he doesn't just have that staff. He also has the rod. Now, the rod does, has two purposes. The rod was used, of course, to defend the sheep from an enemy, from a wolf or something like that. And what an amazing thing is that our shepherd, according to Revelation chapter 19, rules the world with a rod of iron. But the rod was used for something else as well. That little lamb that's been getting off the path and the, the shepherd's been using the staff and pulling him and he gets off the path and the shepherd uses the staff and pulls him and he gets off the path and the shepherd uses the staff and pulls him. Eventually, the shepherd is going to reach down with that rod, which is a, a longer and heavier piece of wood. And he's going to lean over that little lamb and go. And that little lamb's going to say, Ow! I don't like that. Listen, Christian, every now and then the Lord has to use the rod on us, doesn't he? 
The Lord doesn't do it just to be mean. He doesn't do it just because He's vindictive. He does it because He loves that little lamb. Doesn't want Him to get off of the path. Doesn't want Him to get into a place of danger. He protects Him and guides Him and directs Him. And every now and then He has to use the rod on that little lamb. And sometimes He uses the rod on us. By the way, Christian, if you've sat in church service after church service after church service and never been to an altar, and I heard a preacher just say this not too long ago, he said, well, I don't go to the altar. The Lord didn't speak to me. Well, then you really need the altar. If the Holy Spirit of God lays on your pastor, the man of God's heart, to preach you a message from the Word of God to the people of God, and it's been years since He's spoken to you, there's a big problem somewhere along the way. Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And scourgeth every son of me receiveth. Every now and then, he needs to use the rod on us, doesn't he? Notice, please, uh, I have a protecting shepherd. Then David loses his mind. I mean, he literally loses his mind as far as I'm concerned. When you get to verse 5, David says, Thou preparest a table. We have a preparing shepherd. Shepherd, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Then he says this, Thou anointest my head with oil. Now, David is an unusual Bible character. He's the only one in the Bible that was anointed king three different times. In 1 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 1, and 2 Samuel 5. Three times anointed king. That's not talking about this. That's not this anointing. This anointing is talking about the blessings of God. He says, Lord, you keep anointing my head with oil. You keep blessing me. I don't know about you. When I'm living in a tent fleeing from my own son who's out to kill me, I might be saying, boy, this doesn't feel like a blessing. That's not what David said. Lord, you just keep blessing me. You're just so good to me. Then he says something that blows my mind just a little bit. My cup runneth over. He's literally saying there, Lord, you're blessing me too much. Can you stop for a little while? Can I challenge you and just be completely candid? I have never thought that. I've certainly never said that. When the Lord's blessing us, isn't this true of all of us? When the Lord's really blessing us, we're like, okay, another year of this. This would be great. That's not what David says. Nothing's changed. Absalom still wants to kill him. He's still a fugitive in his own kingdom. And he says, but you're just so good. You've blessed me so much, I can't even take it anymore. Years ago, my great uncle Warren, Pastor Davis Memorial Baptist Church, in, uh, up a holler in Charleston, West Virginia. It's one of those churches where, unlike your church, the pastor would just say, have somebody come up to sing and they'd say, y'all pray for us, we ain't practiced much. I love it when people say things like that. But there was one lady, she played the piano and she sang. And he would say, Mrs. Jones, not her real name, Mrs. Jones, come up and sing that song that I like. She'd get to the piano and grab the microphone and she'd say, y'all pray for me. I haven't practiced this song in a while. Well, we know you haven't practiced. He just asked you to sing it like 32 seconds ago. And I don't remember the song. I've tried to find it. And since I used this illustration, hundreds of people have tried to find it. And so far, no one has found it. I just remember one line of the song. It might be a terrible song overall, but I remember one line. It says, I'm drinking from my saucer because my, uh, my cup is overflowing. That's what David says here. Listen, Christian, I don't know how bad things are in your life. But when you stop and think about it, your cup's still running over. You stop and think about it. He's still anointing your head with oil. The Christian can hold on to all these promises. Not only to have a perfect shepherd, a particular shepherd, a present shepherd, a personal shepherd, a providing shepherd, a protecting shepherd, a preparing shepherd. But lastly, I have a permanent shepherd. For those of you involved in choir rehearsal and practice and you play instruments, this psalm can't just fade off into the sunset, can it? It's got to have a hallelujah chorus. 
It's got to end with a crescendo. It's got to end with the, the timpani playing and the, the cymbals coming together with a big crash. This psalm has to end big, doesn't it? <laughs> How about this for a way to end big? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's a promise right there, isn't it? You can sink your teeth in that promise right there. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. But here's the problem with that promise. It has an expiration date on it, doesn't it? You woke up this morning, you have one less day of goodness and mercy than you had yesterday. All the days of my life. One Bible preacher said this. That's because when we die, it's when it finally catches up to us. But anyway, whether you want to look at it that way or not, that's not a big enough promise, right? You can't end this psalm with a, with a promise with an expiration date, can you? But then it says this, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'll give you an illustration and we'll finish. In uh, January of uh, 2019, uh, actually a few months before that, they found out that my father had uh, bladder cancer. Now, my dad had had four heart attacks and uh, had already had two aneurysms repaired, had three more that they were watching. He was deaf in one ear. He had sugar diabetes. He had high blood pressure. He had neuropathy and he was in final stage kidney failure. Uh, and so when they found out he had bladder cancer, they said, well, we, that we could remove the bladder, but we can't because of the renal failure. Well, we could give you uh, chemo, but we can't because of the renal failure. And we could give uh, radiation, but we can't because of the renal failure. So basically, go home and die. I remember I was uh, in the area there, just, uh, just across the border from West Virginia into Kentucky, where I was going to be uh, preaching in Ashland, Kentucky. And I got a phone call just as we were stopped. We'd stopped to walk around a mall there in Barbersville, West Virginia. And I get this phone call from my sister. Dad's in an ambulance on his way to the hospital. I, I, I dropped my wife off at the prophet's chamber. I turned around. I drove back to, about an hour and a half to Charleston. I was there in the hospital room with my sister and my brother, Philip. About three o'clock in the morning, a congestive heart failure at the time. About three o'clock in the morning, the doctor came in and he's talking to us. And you know how it is. I mean, if you've been in the hospital for any length of time, when the doctor comes in, you want him to have your undivided attention and you want to ask him all the questions that you've been thinking about the whole time you were sitting there. And so we're having this conversation out of the clear blue. I don't know what made him do it. My brother Philip looks, looked at me and he said, hey, where are you preaching tomorrow? Just in the middle of the doctor's sentence. I don't know what made him think of it. Squirrel. But anyway, sorry, I shouldn't have thrown that in. And the doctor looked at us and looked at me and he said, are you all three Christians? And we said, yes, sir. He said, well, I am too. By the way, that's one of the most encouraging things you can hear from your doctor. I am too. And he said this. He said, I'm a really good doctor, but I want you to remember that he's the great physician. And when we found out that dad had bladder cancer and that it was hopeless, according to doctors, people began to tell me this. They began to say, well, you know, Brother Harper, he's the great physician. He can heal him. Doesn't matter what doctors say. He can heal him. That's what, he, that's what people would say to me. Now, that is a true statement, but it is nowhere close to a complete statement. On January the 28th, while we were down in Florida, I received a telephone call. At 12.15 on that Sunday afternoon, my dad went home to glory. I said, Brother Harper, wait a minute. You just said that it's not a complete statement that he can heal him. It's, the complete statement is that he will heal him. 
So, Brother Harper, that doesn't even make any sense. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Out of one side of your mouth, you're saying he will heal him. Out of the other side of your mouth, you're saying he died on January 28th at at 12.15 in the afternoon. Which one is true? Both are true. Please understand this. At 12.16 on January the 28th, my dad didn't have any heart problems anymore. He didn't have bladder cancer. He didn't have failing kidneys. He didn't have high blood pressure. He didn't have sugar diabetes. He didn't have any of those things. Because in less than a minute, he was clothed upon with a body that is likened to his his glorious body. See, it's not a choice of whether God is going to heal or not. It's just a choice of when. Jesus has never walked out of a hospital, out of an operating room and saying, I'm sorry, we've done all we can do. He's never sat in a room looking at uh, uh, medical tests and say, listen, there's no hope I can offer you. No, no, no. It's only the choice of whether He heals us now or whether He heals us when we're dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. See, that's what my shepherd is. My shepherd is a permanent shepherd. I will dwell with Him forever and ever. He will never let me down. He will never walk away. He will always take care of His sheep. That's who I have as a shepherd. And if you're saved this morning, that's who you have. If you're a lost person this morning, it doesn't apply. Your future is so much worse. The amazing truth of it is, though, if this morning you were to receive Him as your personal Savior... That quick, that quick, you get him a shepherd. Every promise of Psalm 23 becomes yours to cherish and to clutch close. Every single promise that David talks about, all becomes yours the instant you accept him as your Savior. Now watch this carefully, please. As a Christian sitting here, let me remind you of this. At the beginning of the psalm, David was in a mess. At the end of the psalm, David was in a mess. The only thing that changed is that he's now looking at it through the eyes of the shepherd. Everything looks different when we look at it through the shepherd's eyes. As a Christian, maybe it's time to take our focus off of our trial and put our focus on the Lord is my shepherd. As a lost person, you can trust him right now. There's nothing to stop you. Have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. No one looking around. Every head bowed and every eye closed with no one looking around.